Psalm 127, page 614 in your pew Bible. If you're here for the first time, uh, we have been working through the Psalm of Ascents, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. And these Psalms were uh, sung and they were used in worship as these Jewish pilgrims would travel up to Jerusalem for uh, the various feasts during the year. So these are kind of worship songs, they're preparation songs, and today we're going to look at Psalm 127. So again, page 614 in your pew Bible. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning and we are seeking to hear from you. And so would you open up our minds, our eyes, our hearts to hear from you. Lord, we we cannot understand this passage unless your spirit gives us guidance and illumination. So would you do that for your glory, for our good? Would you make us look more like your son Jesus as a result of engaging with your word this morning? We pray this in his name. Amen. Do you ever feel, do you ever wonder whether the things that you are building in your life The things that you're pouring yourself into every single day. Do you ever wonder whether those things actually matter? Do you ever feel like you're just going through the motions of life? Your wheels are spinning 100 miles an hour. You're you're engaged with all sorts of things, lots of stuff, most of them mundane. But who knows if any of this stuff that you're invested in actually makes a difference? Now think about all the mundane things we do every day or every week. We uh, mow overgrown lawns. We eat mostly forgettable meals, right? We change nasty diapers. We wash the same dishes. We wash the same clothes. We put up with coworkers and teachers and students. We read and respond to a never-ending stream of emails. It just never ends, these emails, right? Maybe if you're lucky... Maybe if you're lucky, you'll have an interesting conversation with a friend or your spouse or a neighbor or something. Or maybe you'll you'll get a chance to watch a, a fun television show in the evening. But then you head to bed, and you hope that your anxious thoughts don't overwhelm you and keep you up at night. And guess what's waiting for us tomorrow? The same thing. The exact same thing, right? Nobody likes feeling useless. We want what we do to count for something. We want what we do to make a difference somewhere, to make a dent somewhere with someone, right? Absolutely. And so we're all about even pushing aside a few pleasures or staying up late or rising early. If we know, if we are convinced that what we are doing, what we are pouring ourselves into counts, matters for something. Now, these kinds of thoughts lead to feelings of 
frustration often. If we know it's useless, if we know it's pointless, often endless days of this kind of low-grade frustration, the daily grinds with frustration. I wonder whether some people here have experienced this before. I certainly have. I wonder whether there are some here this morning who have had these thoughts, felt these feelings, and maybe you're not convinced this morning that what you do, what you do actually matters. Are these things that that are on your plate as you rise up Monday morning, do these things actually count for something? Do they matter to God? How do we know that what we do actually matters? That's what this psalm is about. This psalm gives us a robust theology, a good theology of work and labor and effort. It tells us, it helps us to understand when our work, when our labor is meaningful and when our work and labor and efforts are not, okay? So let's jump in. Let me give you the main idea of this psalm. I'm sure you saw it uh, as we were reading through. Here's the main idea. It's pretty clear. All work is meaningless unless God is behind it. Right? All work is meaningless, it's vanity, it's pointless, it's empty, unless God is behind it. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to make two hopefully simple points from this passage, and we're going to kind of build towards and crescendo on that landing point, on this theme. Okay? So here's the first point that plays off our theme. Here's the first point. Work is good, but fallen. Work is good, but it's fallen. Work is good, but it's fallen. At first glance, you may, uh, you may look at this psalm and you may think it gives a negative view of work, but it doesn't. It's actually giving a negative view of how we sometimes go about working. But work in and of itself is good. It's from God, right? Think back with me to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Do you remember Adam and Eve? They're in a garden and God gives them a, a particular job. Do you remember this? God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 1. Now here's Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. To do what? To work it and to take care of it. So what does this tell us? It tells us that work is hardwired into human existence. It's part of who we are. And so it's in our nature to build things. It's in our nature to make something out of nothing. It's in our nature to use our creative energies to accomplish things. It's in our nature to not only develop inanimate things like projects and and, and products, but to develop human beings like our children. That's coming in the psalm, right? So this psalm especially affirms two kinds of work. You notice that in verse 1. Building houses and watching or guarding cities. Now in the Old Testament, building houses could be taken literally, um, you know, building a physical structure that a family would live in. But it can also be taken figuratively to indicate building a family. Okay, so let me give you an example. King David, in the Old Testament, he wanted to build a temple, a house for God. But God then told him, no, no, I'm going to build you a house. And he wasn't talking about building a temple, you know, the, the beautiful temple in Jerusalem for David. He was talking about building a family for David, building descendants, 
giving him a powerful lineage, which as we know, that happened. God did that. So in light of what comes in the second half of this psalm, as well as this idea of building, it, building the house from the Old Testament, I think this first kind of work that this psalm affirms is building your family. This is good work. Building your family. This is important work. The second kind of good work is watching the city or guarding the city. Now you can picture guards on rooftops and ramparts in the city of Jerusalem. The city is sleeping, they're watching. People are resting in their homes in safety, but they're, all up, they're up all night keeping watch, making sure that you're taken care of, right? Another kind of important work is protecting and safeguarding and watching over a particular town or a particular society. So work for the good of the family is important and good, Work for the good of your city or your society is also important and good. So two kinds of work that are uh, affirmed in this passage right away. Building up your family and building up your society. Now this time also tells us there's something wrong with work, right? Something wrong with work. The laborers apparently can labor in vain. The builders can labor in vain. The watchmen can stand guard in vain. So work can be totally useless. Work can be totally meaningless, at least from God's perspective. Uh, life would be very different if, if Genesis 2 was the last bit of the Bible, right? I would be totally out of, the, uh, out of a job. You guys, all of us, we would be living a perfect life. We would be exalting God with our work, right? But we know that didn't happen. Genesis 3 happened. Adam and Eve sinned against God, against one another, plunged all of humanity into sin, brought a curse upon all of this universe, right? And here's the thing. Not only is this curse, this taint of sin on us, there's a curse now on our work. Genesis chapter 3. Through painful toil, God says, you will eat It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. What does that mean? It means that work will always be hard on this side of heaven. Work is always going to be tough on this side of heaven. Work is going to feel more like toil than joy on this side of heaven, right? And I think we can all, I mean, we don't need to sit here and come up with examples. We understand work is tough. It's toil. It takes energy. Sometimes it means we're going to be toiling late into the night or rising up early. It's hard. But work is fallen in another way, right? The workers are fallen. The workers are fallen. The laborers, the builders, the watchmen, they're fallen. The workers are ravaged by sin. It has tainted us. And so what we bring to work is sin. What we bring to work is a sinful attitude often. Now look at verse 2. This is really interesting. I think it's, it's kind of implied in this verse. In vain you rise early and stay up late. And here's a more literal translation. Eating the bread of anxious toil. In vain you rise early and stay up late. Eating the bread of anxious toil. So this describes someone whose entire work ethic is driven by anxiety. 
by a, a kind of frenzied, frantic anxiety. And so, yes, good things may come from the work, but it's a sort of work, it's a sort of toil that does not honor God because it's anxiety-driven. Have you ever been there before? Anxiety-driven work. It makes you driven, doesn't it, in unhealthy ways. And the thing with anxiety is it, it, it's like a symptom of a disease. It's telling us that something deeper is wrong. We are worshiping something off. We're putting our hope in something not solid. And so what I want to do is I want to give you some, some examples of attitudes, simple, sinful attitudes in our hearts that then lead to anxiety, okay? So here's one, self-sufficiency. I can do this. I can totally do this. I've got what it takes. I need to believe in myself more. I need to work harder, more strategically, more efficiently, a little, wisely, a little bit more wisely. And if I can do that, then I can get whatever Whatever done, I can get whatever is in front of me accomplished. How about control? Control. I've got an agenda. I I know what's up. I know where this company should go. I know where this ministry should go. And so if people can just line up behind me, then they'll be all set. So you manipulate the situation and you put pawns in place to, to kind of direct and guide and move you towards your goal. So get in line, get out of the way, right? What about self-absorption? I don't don't think we have this thought. uh, I don't think we we necessarily speak this thought, but I think we have this thought uh, if we're honest with ourselves. Building my career, building my resume, or building my reputation, or building my status is more important than building this company, or building this product line, or building this ministry, or building my marriage. And so we walk around a shell of ourselves preoccupied, anxious, and we have trouble sleeping at night, right? Where is the trust in God, right? Where is the pursuit of godly purposes? Where's the love for others, love for our families or spouses? Where's the love for our coworkers in any of these attitudes? If we're trying to safeguard, if we're trying to nurture these kinds of sinful attitudes, Self-sufficiency, autonomy, entitlement, um, control, self-absorption, the list goes on and on. It's going to make us anxious, right? It's going to make us driven. We're going to have trouble sleeping at night. So work is good, but work is fallen. That's the first point. The second point is very simple. God works. God works. We first saw God working in Genesis chapter 1 when he created the universe. And it's not like he marshaled all of his resources for six days, and then he took a a nap on the seventh day, and then he took a sabbatical for the rest of history, right? We know that. We don't believe in a deistic God who's totally distant and unattached. We believe God is still working now. He's still working today. This morning, he's still working. That's what we believe as Christians. God is still building. God is still watching. God is still giving children. God is still working. He's working to sustain our existence. He's working to hold things together that need to be held together. He's working to multiply cells to produce growth. He's working in a million different ways, right? God is building. God is watching. God is giving children. Now, 
in this particular psalm, I see three ways that God works. Okay, three ways that God works. The first way is he works in our work. He works in our work. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches the city, unless the Lord gives children, none of these things will happen. And our labors are in vain. This means that God is working in every task, in every responsibility that he has given you. Think about that. God, every task, every responsibility he's given you, everything that's on your plate that he has given you, God is working. There's a, a real partnership at work here. He's working ahead of us, but he's also working with us. He's working behind us, on, on the sides. He's working through us. He's working all around us. And so the real question is, are we working with him or are we working without him? Are we working for ourselves or are we working for him? Now, if you attempt any work without God, the psalm says you, you can expect failure, right? Even if you get worldly success, you're working without God, you get worldly success, it's still without God's blessing. And you can expect no real satisfaction, no lasting satisfaction for your labors. But if you choose to work with God, if you choose to work for God, you can experience blessing and favor and real satisfaction. So, number two, God works when we rest. God works in our work. God works when we rest. This is incredibly encouraging, right? God works when we rest. Look at verse two again. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. God works in our rest. Verse 2 tells us that sleep is a gift for those who love God. How many people here love sleeping? Yeah? It's like top five things for me to do in life. I love to sleep. It's great, right? Apparently, we spend one-third of our lives sleeping. One-third of our life is spent sleeping. And I think God has given us this gift of sleep because he wants us to know that we are creatures and we are not the creator, right? We are um, dependent creatures. We are not many independent gods. And so he's hardwired this into human existence. You got to sleep. You're not the energizer bunny. You got to sleep, right? I love taking naps. And, um, you know, I, I hardly ever get to take one because there's just so much to do, but I love taking naps, 10, 15, 20 minutes, hour naps are the best. <laughs> I, uh, I highly recommend naps. Now, one of the kindest things that Jenny does for me is she allows me to take a nap uh, when something's going on. So she'll tell me things like, hey, I'll watch Emma, you go take a nap. You know, I'll finish up with this project, you go take a nap. It's very kind. And that's how God operates with us too, right? In his love, he gifts us with sleep. And while we sleep, he is working. Isn't that cool? While we sleep, he's working. Even when we sleep, he is planning and guarding and building and multiplying, and, and he's doing stuff. And this means we can entrust ourselves, we can entrust our work and the results of our work and the fruit of our work to God, because he's working even when we are not. So we don't need to be anxious and frenzied and frantic. He's accomplishing big things when we're napping. Isn't that cool? 
So while, while God has called us to work diligently, he has also called us to work by faith. He's called us to work by faith. And what that means is don't overwork. What that means is know your limitations. What that means is take some time to unplug and unwind. You need it. And, and guess what? Rest is an expression of your trust in God. Rest is a demonstration of your humility. Right? Only arrogant people refuse to rest. So, God works when we rest. God works as we rest. So let's rest. Let's take that nap. Number three, God works in our families. And this is a, surprisingly, it's a pretty predominant theme in this psalm. And uh, the psalmist gives Solomon, he gives a lot of attention to children and building the family and so on. And so we, we need to give some attention to this. Verses 3 through 5, they tell us children are a gift, a reward, a blessing from God. And you may think, okay, husbands and wives, they make efforts to have a baby. You know, and a husband and a wife, when they love each other enough, things happen, and then there's a baby, right? That's kind of what happens. But right now, my wife, who's 32 weeks pregnant, Jenny and I, we're doing nothing consciously, nothing consciously to form this little boy. What does that tell me? That tells me that God is working. God is multiplying cells. God is only working to form this baby and eventually bring us a beautiful baby boy, right? Unfortunately, our culture doesn't always view children in this light. I wonder whether you saw this article in Time Magazine last August. Um, it was, the cover story, it was, about, um, it was about the increasing desire for couples to be child-free. You see this? There's a picture of a, a, a man and a wife, a you know, husband and a wife, and they're laying on the beach and they, they're sipping something and they're laying down and they're enjoying the good life. Apparently, the American birth rate is at a record low in the last seven years. And so this article, it had, it's, it had stunning lines like, um, you can have it all and not have any children. One woman, she was recorded saying, my main motive not to have children was, what, what was that I loved my life the way it was. So why aren't more and more couples having children, more and more younger couples? It's because they find children an inconvenience, right? They find children an inconvenience. So, so today, in, in today's culture, more and more people, more and more couples are prioritizing their pleasure, their convenience, their comfort, their preferences for life over and above children. And more specifically, over and, over and above God's mandates about children. And we, we all know kids are a lot of work. I'm just, just starting to get a taste of that. Kids are a lot of work. They require a lot of time, a lot of commitment, energy, you know, um, sacrifice. But it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Why is it worth it? It's worth it because God has commanded us to be fruitful and fill this earth with little Christ-like image bearers. Right? It's worth it because Psalm 127, what we just read, tells us that these children are a gift and a blessing and a reward. It's worth it because these children are God's merciful means of growing his redeemed people. 
generation after generation. You want to make an impact on this world for Christ? Here's one way. Have kids and train them up in the Lord. Right? How are they a blessing? How are these children a blessing according to this passage? Where there's two pictures here. First is arrows in the warrior's hand, and that's a symbol of strength. Right? And then verse 5, uh, there's a picture of, of contending with enemies in the gate. The city gate was the place where justice was administered. And so as these kids, as they're growing up, as they, as they grow up, they become influential, and then they are able to have their dad's back as he's contending with enemies at the gate. That's the picture here. So these two pictures, they tell us that children are a gift because of their strength and because of their influence as they are shot out into the world to do what God has designed for them. So the question then is for us, as, as, as we're thinking about parenting, as we're thinking about, okay, these are, these are gifts. They've been given to us for a, a short, limited time. We are therefore stewards of these beautiful kids. What are we going to do? Are we going to train them up in God's ways? Will we equip them with the Christian worldview? Are we going to teach them how to think for themselves? How to think and make decisions for themselves? How to think Christianly about all of life? And then are we going to unleash them on the world for the glory of God and for the good of others? Is this our plan? You know, there's two extremes of parenting, and I think it's easy to kind of fall into both of these. One is, is being overly protective, to make all your decisions for your kids, to box them in, and then all of a sudden you're, you're, you're shocked when they're 19 and in college and their life implodes, right? And the other extreme is to totally be hands-off. They'll figure it out. They're learning. They'll make mistakes. They'll grow up and not be intentional, right? And then you're shocked when they're 19 and in college and their life explodes, implodes, explodes, either way. I think one of my uh, favorite writers, Andy Wilson, he, um, he, he strikes a, a good balance as, as far as parenting is concerned. Listen to his words. The world is rated R, and no one is checking IDs. Do not try to make it G by imagining the shadows away. Do not try to hide your children from the world forever, but do not try to pretend there is no danger. Train them. Give them sharp eyes and bellies full of laughter. Make them dangerous. Make them yeast. And when they've grown, they will pollute the shadows. Isn't that cool? If you're able to have children, do not neglect your calling to be fruitful and to fill this world with Christ-like image bearers. Now, what if you can't have children? What if physically you or your spouse, you guys aren't able to have children? Or what if you are single? Maybe it's a season of singleness. Maybe God has called you to a lifetime of singleness. How does this passage apply to you? Now, I want to be careful here. This is a, a sensitive topic, I, I would imagine there's pain, and so I want to tread carefully. But let me just gently nudge you this morning. Let me say to you that you can have spiritual children. You can have spiritual children. 
In fact, all of us in this room that would claim Christ are called by Jesus to have spiritual children. That's what he meant when he said, make disciples of all nations. He meant have spiritual children. Train them up in the Lord. Build up your spiritual family. Make those kids dangerous. Make those kids yeast so they can pollute the shadows. One of my mentors uh, is a pastor in Michigan named Neil. Neil is 62 years old, and he has been single all his life. And he has given his life to pouring himself out for college students for over 35 years in Iowa, Nebraska, and for the last 25 years in Michigan. And uh, Neil and I, we were, we were on a train ride to, from Chittagong, Bangladesh, to Dhaka, and we were on a mission trip, and we were talking, and we were chatting. I mean, it, was, it was actually kind of a fun conversation. We were talking about past dating relationships. It's kind of fun. You should try it sometime. And, uh, and so we were, we were laughing, laughing, laughing. And then we got to a point where he started talking about Polly. Things got a little serious when we were talking about Polly. And through tears, he was telling me how much he loved Polly, who he met in his late 20s. And they were this close to becoming engaged. And he, he had talked with her about having children and doing life and ministry together. And it was, it was so close to actually happening. He loved her. You can tell. It didn't work out for Neil. About six or seven years ago, we threw Neil a surprise 25-year anniversary for his ministry party. We invited people that had been involved in his ministry, and, and so we gathered. I had no idea, Jenny and I, we had no idea how many people are going to show up to this party. So we walked into this gymnasium, and we saw over 350 people from all over the world, all over the United States, that were there to honor God's grace in Neil's life because he had been for a season their spiritual father. And they were his spiritual children. I can think of two other people, two other people, two other, two other men who are single and who have hundreds, thousands of spiritual children. I think you know one, Jesus Christ. He was the most fully human being and he was single and he had thousands of spiritual children. The other is the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary in the world, Perhaps we could say one of the greatest leaders in the world. He was single, and he had thousands of spiritual children. Now, what does that tell me? What does that tell me? It tells me that investing in spiritual children is just as satisfying and just as important as investing in biological children, training them up in the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, especially those of you that are not able to have children Give yourself to the satisfying task of filling up this world with Christ-like image bearers, whether they are biological or spiritual children. Give yourself to that task. Finally, um, I want to talk about how God works in Christ. God works in Christ. So God works in our work. He works when we rest. He works uniquely in families. God also especially works in Christ. He has intervened in our work. He has intervened in our rest. He has intervened in our families. 
But the work and the workers, we are still sinful. We are still tainted by this curse. And now, through Jesus, the good news, right, is that we can be saved. We can be forgiven. This curse can be lifted from, out, from us. This curse can be lifted in some ways even from work. As we've been discussing this morning, maybe you recognize you know, you're not a Christ follower. You recognize your sinful attitudes at work or as you work. Let me encourage you to put your full trust in Christ so that the curse will be lifted from you so that you will be forgiven and so that he will help you to become a godly worker. Without Christ, it is impossible to obey this psalm. Only with Christ and through Christ can we obey this psalm, right? So the single parent who is working two jobs while somehow finding time to make dinner and clean the house and spend quality time with her children and train them up in the Lord, She's working with God. She's working for God. She's being faithful. She's certainly not perfect. Most of what she does, nobody sees. Most of what she does, nobody gives her thanks for. A financial advisor who is working in town alongside some coworkers who like to cut corners and fudge numbers and build their careers without God. And meanwhile, he's faithfully slugging away, humbly and quietly, diligently in ways that honor God. Nobody really sees him or acknowledges his faithfulness day after day, week after week. The overwhelmed mom in the house, the hardworking but bullied student at school, And we can go on and on, right? Do any of these efforts matter? Is this making a dent? Is anyone pleased with what I'm doing? The answer is yes. This morning, and this has been my prayer the last two days, I want you to feel God's pleasure in all that you do for him. I want you to feel God's pleasure in all that you do for him and with him. Because he sees, he's pleased, he's not ignoring you. Because you're working with him, you're working for him, your efforts, your labors, they are not in vain. I want to close with one more quote from Andy Wilson. Do not resent your place in the story. Do not imagine yourself elsewhere. Do not close your eyes and picture a world without thorns, without shadows, without hawks. Change this world. Use your body like a tool meant to be used up, discarded, and replaced. Better every life you touch. We will reach the final chapter. When we have eyes that can stare into the sun eyes that can only squint for the glory of Christ, then we will see laughing children pulling cobras by their tails and hawks and rabbits playing tag. 
Use your life like a tool meant to be used up, discarded, and replaced. Use your life up for the glory of Christ, for the good of others. Use your life up, and then you can be confident. You can be confident that what you do actually matters. You can be confident that you are far from being useless to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, which is rich and deep and true. We thank you for speaking to us. And I pray, Father, that we would feel your pleasure this morning as we think about all of the small and medium-sized and large-sized tasks that you have given us. And even if no one's watching, Father, we know that you watch and you are pleased as we work for you. Help us to see the dignity in all the little tasks that we can do for you. And Father, I pray that you'd bless each of us, that you would put wind in our sails, you would encourage us, you would motivate us as we wake up tomorrow morning and we have a whole new week ahead of us. I pray that you'd encourage us and bless us. In Christ's name, amen.